Hey everybody, my name is Pete. Welcome to another episode of Level 99. Very excited to have all of you guys here today. Podcast about all things tech related. DevOps, cloud, automation, you name it. This episode is something I really have been excited to do. And that is about Terraform. And actually, I'm very proud to announce that today with us, we have Jay from HashiCorp. So I'm going to send it over to Jay and let you introduce yourself. And as for fun, how about you say your most fun or proudest project you've ever done? Awesome. Thanks so much for that for that introduction. Hey, everyone. My name is Jay Awari. I'm a senior solutions engineer here at HashiCorp. I work in the public sector, uh, working with uh, U.S. federal agencies. Um, start to use HashiCorp products, so Terraform, Vault, Nomad, Console, as well as our open source products as well. Um, and a free or uh, <clears throat> uh, an interesting project that I worked on. I wouldn't call it a project, but um, it really was like an all hands on deck. Uh, maybe about five years ago, I was working at NIH. Um, I was in a room um, full of uh, other engineers as well. We had just finished up um, dinner and we're about to go uh, and, and leave. And uh, we just got a notification from our CISO that, um, hey, or the agency level that, hey, um, Eternal Blue just came out. We need to have it patched by X number of hours. And it was, it was within a 12 hour timeline, I think. And so um, we were like, okay, we were not gonna go to dinner or go after go out after dinner. And so we came back and literally five of us working in my friend's apartment, VPN'd in, um, wrote scripts for the patch, uh, develop patches, turned off all the vul- vulnerability, um, uh, you know, issues, and, and uh, tried to mitigate it as, as best we can. Rescanned it with Nessus, um, refixed it again, deployed out to about uh, ten thousand um, endpoints. I would say between workstations and servers, and etc. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a hectic uh, four hours. I think it was, but that was that was pretty fun. <laughs> That I can only imagine. I've I've been in those situations myself, and I can only imagine like the the stress, and then having like your manager asking you like, "Hey, is it done? Is it done? Do you guys got it? Do you guys got it?" <laughs> exactly. Uh, but um, so I'll I'll let you expand on this. But for you know, I love Terraform. It, it it's kind of one thing that started me into the, the whole automation in this entire DevOps process. Because when I was starting my journey in AWS, I was getting really tired of just clicking buttons on every account. And I was still a little uh, wet behind the ear to actually start using the CLI commands and stuff like that. So if you don't mind, would you kind of give us a high overview of what Terraform is in your own words? Sure. So um, if you want to think of your building blocks, right? You, you kind of mentioned it uh, when you're using the AWS GUI or even the CLI. Um, it doesn't have to be AWS as well. It could be uh, Azure, GCP, even on-premise environments. When we're using those building blocks, um, we want to interact with them um, programmatically, right? We don't want to have to click through menus. We don't have to learn a new language every time we switch through cloud providers. And so what Terraform aims to do is really bridge the gap between all the different um, languages, complexities, syntaxes between a lot of different environments, AWS, Azure, GCP, et cetera. And so um, it allows you to build um, infrastructure within any environment um, and it's it's repeatable, right? And so you don't have to refactor your code uh, once it's created. 
and your engineers don't have to learn if they're used to Azure, that's okay. They're not, they don't have to learn AWS syntax, for example. Um, so Terraform kind of bridges that gap uh, and it makes it easier to deploy infrastructure and resources out to those environments. Um, and if you want to think of it as a real world example, you can think of it as building a house, right? And so um, we Terraform can go ahead and, and um, we, we say what we want to desire in the end states. So we want the house to have a garage, uh, maybe five windows in the front, um, all the walls in a certain layout, color, et cetera, um, on the exterior. So Terraform goes ahead and builds that house, puts the roof together, the garage, everything. Uh, and then we can use a configuration management tool like Chef, Puppet, Ansible to go in and do the interior decorating, for example. So That's awesome. Thank you for that explanation. For someone who is maybe new, and is starting to get into you know infrastructure as code and trying to learn more about this, what would you say is a good place for them to start? I think the best place to start, uh, if they're looking at just infrastructure as code, um, honestly, there are a lot of tutorials out there. Um, <clears throat> some of the best um, resources are out on GitHub, right? Or um, GitLab, Bitbucket, et cetera. You can uh, browse a public repositories of folks that have deployed stuff out in AWS, maybe they're deploying out even something as simple as an EC2 instance, or maybe it's a it's a three-tier application, for example. And, and just look at that. Um, for Going from a traditional infrastructure uh, engineer mindset to a DevOps or infrastructure as code mindset really begins by looking at what you're going to be interacting with, and that is code, right? Um, and so I, I would start there, start what it looks like, start the syntaxes. And then beyond that, there's a lot of other resources available between HashiCorp Learn and, and trainings uh, that are available on our website documentation and also like um, other tools and, uh, you know, cloud provider specific documentation as well. So I know when I first started messing with uh, Terraform, my two best friends was YouTube and as well as GitHub. And <laughs> combining those two with the documentation that you guys provide, it made it so easy just to follow along, like seeing a, you know, what someone was doing and then seeing when a template was in GitHub and then applying that to what you guys have on your website for the documentation. It was just so smooth. It, it maybe okay. The first week was rough, <laughs> um, but the second week it just clicked and I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. Right. And then started small. So I first just kind of what you're saying with like the instances. So I just started maybe just creating a small T2. And then from there, I got a little bit more fancy with attaching volumes and then, okay, now let me get a load balancer and then attach this to it. Let's see if that would work. I was like, Oh, this is working. And then <laughs> from there, I would just keep doing this building blocks and making a more complex solution. But just having all these resources at hand and seeing like how far I can go, and where I want to go just made it like so much easier, in my opinion, at least when I was starting. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's actually what I, I see with a lot of my customers as well, especially when they're new to the cloud. Um, and so um, looking at codifying their infrastructure build process, uh, kind of what you're describing as well, and, and starting off small, maybe it's a small project, right? My, my personal way of uh, learning this stuff was I used to work at Splunk prior to Hashi. And I was looking at um, maybe dockerizing 
uh, Splunk deployments, or maybe even going to multi-cloud Splunk deployments, and I didn't want to have to refactor the code each time. Um, and so a lot of my customers are, are dealing with that um, as they shift to the cloud, right? And uh, and sometimes even mature customers, when they're uh, scaling up and out, uh, kind of like you're, you're describing, you build incrementally, like add in the load balancer, add in, you know, maybe in a multi-region setup. And so, yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of great resources out there, whether you're uh, a visual learner, whether hands-on like me um, to get, you know, just, um, L, uh, you know, hands deep into the, uh, into the, the technology. Um, everything's available to you at the tip of your fingertips. Essentially. I, I personally am a, I'm just like you. I am a hands-on learner. You can tell me the sky is blue, but until I go outside and look at it, I won't believe you. I'm like, there's no way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I, I, love you know just the fact that how easy it is and just how simple like writing it in in json it was it was just it was awesome but i did have at least when i was first starting off an issue but we'll we'll get into that a little bit uh after like we talk about some some uh, more of the best practices when it comes to install and setup right what platforms would you say is like you got support or like the best platform to use Terraform on? Uh, I would. I, I don't know that there is um, sort of a one-size-fits-all approach, right? It, it, what works for one person, organization, or team may not work for another. Um, so just to kind of back up a little bit, uh, for those not aware, uh, Terraform and a lot of Hashi products, they come in a few different flavors. So uh, there's the open source version, it's, it's command line focused. Um, there's an enterprise offering as well, which is um, uh, split into self-hosted. You can host it within your own cloud environment, on-prem data centers, et cetera. And then we also have a SaaS offering for our products as well. And they each have their own different use cases. Um, and so, uh, for example, talking about the open source CLI version, you could get started right away just installing it on your local workstation, right? And, and because it's command line based, you can get up and running within minutes, um, clone a Git repository and start working on those examples that you were talking about earlier, right? Um, and then as far as uh, some of the other options, um, obviously SaaS is, SaaS is pretty quick, right? Uh, but even self-hosted, um, you can, you know, self-hosting within your cloud or on-premise environments uh, and get up and running that way during your normal build process. But I would say um, whatever's easiest, whatever's comfortable for you, there's not a, you know, you don't have to deploy it in a certain, you know, uh, Red Hat environment only, you know, you could easy as, uh, just as easy as my my local Mac OS workstation, I'm deploying it on there and, and using that, so. What would you say would be, so with the various solutions, well, who would want to use like the SaaS Op, uh, offering versus like the CLI, right? Like, would you say like a small enterprise would rather go SaaS or actually a large enterprise? Yeah, great question. That's something I uh, talk to a lot of customers about, right? And so um, <clears throat> really for um, where open source shines is those individual users, those developers that are just getting their feet wet with um, infrastructure as code, uh, maybe even for smaller teams, um, it, it's useful. So um, each engineer or architect can work on their own local workstation. Maybe they can collaborate just in a limited fashion, maybe in a, in a Git repository, for example. Um, but as, as uh, your use cases and your um, organizations scale up, right, or scale out even, um, 
the the complexities get huge and it's hard to sort of track um, things like the Terraform state file on each individual engineer's workstation. And, and we can talk about that and how to manage that, right? And so um, <clears throat> there's other cases where organizations uh, or agencies don't have the personnel to uh, stand up a Terraform infrastructure. They don't have uh, personnel to manage it. They just want to be consumers of it, right? And so um, that's where the cloud platform really shines, the SaaS platform. They can get up and running. Uh, they can start building out the infrastructure that they need without worrying about the overhead or administrating, um, administering Terraform um, SaaS. Uh, and then the enterprise self-hosted version is kind of like a blend where um, you do have uh, infrastructure and operations and, and DevOps folks uh, that can support, you know, deploying it, building it out and, and administering it day to day. Um, but there's other features that they're going to use uh, that aren't available in the command line version, the, the open source version. So things like um, a remote state file uh, that is encrypted, that's available to you. Um, there's a GUI component to, to self-hosted Terraform as well. Um, and, you know, things like policy as code. Uh, and, and a lot of other functionalities that um, are better for um, medium to larger enterprises. So you, you said something that I, I kind of was waiting to touch base on, which was the encryption part. And the one thing I do agree that is beneficial when you go to like any SaaS offering is that is one thing that is kind of off your back because you see time again, like no matter how secure environment is, things sometimes do get left behind or you just forget about and that becomes your attack surface and that causes like a crippling effect. And just having that, like, you know, having a SaaS solution, you guys just taking care of like encrypting those files and just be one less thing someone has to worry about is so beneficial and critical. Um, and you see that a lot. And like there was, I did an episode a, a little while ago with, uh, I think I was talking about Panasonic and GoDaddy and it was actually, they forgot to change their password on mm -hmm. a, on a node. And that's how they got breached and tons of data got leaked and having that state file encrypted is actually very important to have. Like, it's just, <laughs> you don't think about it. Right. But you're just like, Oh, yeah. let me get all this stuff up and going just to make sure my managers are all happy and I'm meeting my deadlines. But it's these small things that you kind of just gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And, you know, um, me as a former security engineer, security guy, security mindset, that, that kind of stuff makes me cringe, right? So if we hard code credentials within a Terraform code, right, or um, any, any sensitive information. Um, and so if we check that into a Git repository, for example, especially if it's public facing, like we're done, right? So <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I try to hammer it even you know, folks I talk to that are just using the open source version to uh, the enterprise version of Terraform, like, do not store credentials in code. Please don't do that. You'd be you'd be surprised how often that happens. Um, am I? I won't say which company. Um, <laughs> a while back, I was just bored one day. I was like, you know, I was looking at some open source um, projects, and I think it was. Um, snort it was get snort it was something like that it was a cool project it will scan through all of your github projects or mm -hmm. whatever you have internal and it'll scan for like credentials and i was just like mm -hmm. left and right open i was like these developers is just <laughs> i was just so shocked so i just grabbed all that and gave it to my boss and my you know it's a security team i was like 
hey guys, I have a fun project for you on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you were the team favorite yeah. on that day. <laughs> but I mean, if somebody doesn't do it, it's, it's just a matter of time, right? Like it just, yeah. someone has to be that guy eventually. It's, it's better you did it than, you know, bad actor finding that. Oh yeah. It, <laughs> I can't say that. It happened to my buddy at this company. I can't tell you that. Never mind. <laughs> it happens in Vegas. Stays in Vegas. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> oh man! With the SaaS solution, I'm assuming what you, what you were talking about is that you guys do scan for these type of credentials or leaks. At least for I don't know. I know Log4j doesn't retain to this solution, but let's say something else of that caliber does come back. Would you say the SaaS solution has the customers like covered? Yeah, and and just uh, just a point of clarification. So um, when we think of Terraform Enterprise, there's a self-hosted version uh, that you can install yourselves, as well as SaaS, right? And so um, both of those have similar functionality. Um, it's just one is HashiCorp hosted, and it's true SaaS. The other one is has all the enterprise features, and, and customers will host that within their own environment. Um, and so either of those two, you know, any flavor of Terraform Enterprise, um, there's a capability to mark variables as sensitive. So your AWS access key IDs, um, SSH credentials, et cetera, you can create a variable set and mark them as sensitive uh, within within the, the environment. And so um, you still store your credentials, but they're encrypted uh, as soon as you hit save. Um, and then after that, they're not printed out anywhere, they're not referenced anywhere else. Um, and then as far as encryption, your actual state file um, is encrypted on the back end as well. And so um, if anybody uh, was to access um, the, the state file, they were able to access that within your own environment or let's say the SaaS environment, they still wouldn't have access to your sensitive data, which is your, you know, let's say AWS credentials. Now, let's say for someone who wants to actually start implement this on not just doing a one-off node just to practice but they want to implement on an entire ci cd pipeline what would you suggest on trying to implement this so for example when i was uh starting off and actually after i got used to the whole scenario i had uh, a jenkins and i had like a, a like a t2 like micro node that i installed terraform on that would c call like the node and i would pull my um, code from like a bitbucket and it would just do like the magic for me what like besides that scenario what other examples of cicd example like would you suggest yeah great question so <clears throat> i actually funny you mentioned that um just helped uh uh large government contractor um, start to think about this and, and um, implement this within their own environment. And so um, we came up with um, what their current process was. So their use case was provisioning VMs uh, within uh, their environment using Terraform, uh, a couple other tools as well. Uh, and so they wanted to make that process easier. They wanted to make what, what we call as a self-service infrastructure. 
um, their end users were going out and requesting infrastructure through like a ServiceNow ticket, for example. They would have like an intake form where the user would fill out all the information. Then the uh, infrastructure engineer would get that. Then they would start the build process. Maybe they would kick off a Terraform plan. Maybe they would have to do it manually. Um, you know, they'd have to update their CMDB, for example, or they'd have to, after the provisioning, they'd have to scan for security issues, vulnerabilities, patches, et cetera. And so um, there were a lot of opportunities to sort of automate that process, right? And they did have Jenkins, they weren't using it as effectively as they thought. And so they kind of wanted to see what other customers were doing or other folks in the uh, industry were doing. Uh, and so we, we came up with sort of similar workflow, right? So, and I wish I could share my screen here because I'd, I'd love to show it to you, but so essentially an end user, you know, starts off with ServiceNow requests uh, that, that's a trigger, right? Um, and that can actually communicate with Terraform on the back end. A lot of folks don't know that. Um, so uh, within that ticket, uh, Terraform can uh, read the information from that ticket. It, it could also be a service catalog request from ServiceNow, for example. And then uh, Terraform can do a number of things, right? And so uh, it can go ahead and start that build. It can do policy and security checks from that. Um, if it needs to pull uh, the latest golden image, uh, it can do that as well. And then, of course, after it builds, we can do a confirmation, you know, put a message out to Slack or Teams or something, and then uh, update that CMDB that I was talking about. And so for this customer, we had a couple different approaches. So for their build process for making those those golden images, essentially they they held everything within a Git repository. And so <clears throat> we would have a couple different options for building a pipeline uh, based on that, right? And so it could be hosted uh, templates on GitHub uh, for Packer or to free tool Packer to build VMs. Once those templates are built, of course, they'd have the base OS, they'd have the provisioning pieces, any scripts, agents, et cetera, and patches that need to be installed. The developer could make it either a push to GitHub, could be like a nightly, weekly, or regularly scheduled build. Either of those two actions would kick off a Jenkins job to build that template in, within Packer. So then Packer would go ahead and, uh, and stand up a VM. It would, if it needs to get temporary credentials for the cloud environment, they could do that. Packer would go ahead and uh, create the VM, create the template, and then publish that template uh, as an image, uh, like an AMI in AWS, for example, that's available, and then destroy it, maybe send a confirmation as well. Um, and then Jenkins can, the next job could be to trigger a Terraform plan to use that golden image that we just created on the fly to service that user's request, right? And so there's a lot of flexibility that's available. I think it's it's important to kind of understand where you're going to start, what is your end state, where are you trying to get to, and what are the what does that the current workflow look like? Let's see how we can automate it, we can improve it, and optimize it. Long-winded answer. No, I love it. I actually learned something new. I didn't know you could pull stuff like that from ServiceNow. My mind was blown. I was like, wow, that. I want to do that now. <laughs> I want to try that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, honestly, yeah, because I remember when I uh, was messing with it, I had a drop down menu off of Jenkins, off of like the the pipeline form. So I didn't even know that was an option. This is this is actually I'm kind of nerding out right now. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I found that it's helpful for those those teams and users that aren't super technical, right? Like, if we look at maybe like a finance department or an HR department that's, that wants to stand up something or maybe even a, a DB admin, right? Um, they don't need to know Terraform. They don't need to know AWS syntax, et cetera. They just want to provision a, a database, for example. 
Um, and so, yeah, exactly um, what we're talking about. They they would log into ServiceNow, pick from a dropdown of a particular pre-published uh, infrastructure, um, and then on the back end, Jenkins could go ahead and trigger instantaneous golden image creation. It could trigger Terraform plans, uh, and then you know confirmations and other things that that end user needs to do. All the while, they haven't touched a line of code, right? And they don't need to. That's the beauty of yeah, it. Yeah, especially in some work environments where it's like security is of utmost importance and they literally lock everyone out of like, whether it's Jenkins or AWS, something like that could be very beneficial for an entire company. You just have one select group of users that actually have the right admin credentials and everyone else is locked out. You don't have to worry about access or anything. Even something in that scenario, I can see how beneficial and useful that would be. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know um, if you've come across uh, the term or, um, yeah, term uh, zero trust at all, but that's kind of where we see the industry heading, right? And so you kind of mentioned one set of admins having credentials um, and, and sort of anybody else not being able to access them. So we're moving away from shared credentials. I can tell you in a past life as a security engineer, I have seen firsthand uh, teams and individuals sharing like Excel spreadsheets full of credentials, right? And so moving away from that and, and sort of a trust nothing, authenticate and authorize everything mindset. Things like having, uh, making it convenient for people to build out their infrastructure, do their job, um, but also not have to worry about credentials creep, credentials storing, et cetera, it is really where we see the industry heading. Uh, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out there. So things like, you know, moving away from those static credentials uh, and moving to dynamic credentials, for example, like short-lived. So that database example uh, that I gave, after they've got that database provision, for example, maybe we could also trigger Jenkins job to give them short-lived credentials that last maybe 30 minutes or something for them to do a job. Uh, and then they can request access again on a per needed basis instead of always having access. So it's really cool where the, uh, where the industry's heading. No, definitely. I think it's more important than ever, at least with zero trust these days. On paper, it sounds awesome, but in practice, sometimes it's just painstaking. So at my previous org, I had like keys of the kingdom, whatever I needed, I could just do. Yeah. But in my new organization, you know, they really believe in a divided policies, you know, zero trust. So me not having that access that I need is just like, want to pull my hair out sometimes. Like, I know how to do this. Please let me just do it. Like, yeah. I, I could do this in two seconds. I can script this out and just, we can all be happy. But this whole process, even having something like, like that intake form, or at least being able to maybe just write my own Terraform script, and then I can just do a pull request and have someone review it before they accept it would make life simpler because you know me being like the application owner i know exactly what state of the environment needs to be what the resources need to be versus the like the admins telling me no 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 right like it's like i i really mm. need this <laughs> please let me have it <laughs> I want to share my AMI so I don't have to redo all my work again. <laughs> so you did touch base on one of my pain points when I was first starting on that was that state file. I found mm -hmm. it so hard maintaining that state file. And if you lose that state file, you're kind of in an SOL state. So mm -hmm. how would you recommend someone who's like fairly new or even a veteran? How would you properly maintain that state file? Oh, and, well, let me back up. Could we also talk about what that state file is? Sure. Great questions. So let's start with 
what is the state file. So Terraform has a, has a concept of um, a state file, which is essentially what its knowledge is of the infrastructure or resources that it deployed out there, right? Uh, and so when we build out Terraform code, when we write infrastructure as code, we, it's called desired state configuration. Basically what we desire the end state to be, we're going to codify that. Once Terraform goes ahead and deploys it, uh, it needs to have a record uh, of, hey, I deployed this. Uh, maybe I'll need to make changes to it later. I need a way to to know about it. And, and so that's where the state file is. And, and essentially you can view the state file as well. Uh, it's human readable and give you the, it gives you the, the current build of the infrastructure, uh, the current state of the infrastructure as far as Terraform knows it and, and get other insights there. So it's really useful. Um, and it's also kind of leading into the next, uh, next piece. And in, in your other question is it's really important because it does describe your infrastructure. It does describe uh, all of the resources. And so it can potentially expose to a bad actor how your uh, entire VPC is set up, how your network um, network flow is, is set up, um, your firewall rules that you codified with Terraform, your databases, et cetera. Um, anything you build is, is reflected within that state file. And, and kind of what we were talking about earlier, if you accidentally store sensitive credentials in there, sensitive things in there, it's existing in the state file. And so if a bad actor gets it, you know, it's just as bad as if you were to lose it. The next piece is, you know, what happens uh, if you lose it? I hear that with a lot of customers as well, sort of your sentiments echoed where, you know, it, it's hard to come back from a lost or corrupted state file. It, it's really hard. And, and there's not like a way to roll back or import in a clean way. And so it's, it's, super important to know where the state file is, protect it uh, from security uh, incidents, but also protect it from deletion, accidental deletion, corruption, etc. Um, and so by default in the open source version of Terraform, the state file is stored on your, wherever you're running Terraform. You know, if I'm running it on my local MacBook, it's gonna be stored there. And it's also important because it gives us visibility going on in the infrastructure. So if I build something, the state file is in my local computer. How do you, as part of my team, know what I built without having to query AWS, right? And so that's kind of where uh, it's important to potentially, uh, uh, you know, centralize uh, the state file. Of, uh, there's creative ways around it. I've seen customers when they're using open source, uh, they can put it somewhere central, like a, a share or like an S3 bucket, restrict access to that. And that way they have a centralized location. You're, you're relying on AWS's resiliency, protecting it as well. And then both of us could have visibility into what either of us did, right? And then larger enterprises, medium enterprises, there that's where they're truly seeing the value of Terraform Enterprise or SaaS is because that state file is automatically backed up elsewhere off of their premises and protected automatically. And so, and there's other creative ways to do cool things with it too. So, uh, you know, I talked about like, what if I build something, how do you know about it? Well, if we put it in an S3 bucket, you'll know about it, but how do you make changes to it without affecting what I did? Because my Terraform code is still gonna be local to my my workstation. Um, and so I've seen folks integrate the state file with uh, a backend database. And so there's, there's changes happening. There's either of us could work on it um, and, and it's still 
it's still up to date. You could also, when you when you store it in a centralized place, a version control uh, system driven workflow. So things like GitHub, for example, um, either of us could push code. It could kick off uh, Jenkins pipeline to build out that code, implement those changes, uh, and then it'll automatically update that state file that's held somewhere else, right? And then, you know, last thing mentioned is, uh, you know, if I have the state file on my workstation locally, if it gets lost or stolen, my laptop just dies. What if something happens to it? It's really, really hard to come back from that. And so I, I tell everybody that I interact with, please, in addition to not storing sensitive credentials within your Terraform code, please protect your state file in, in some way. <laughs> Thank you. That was a lot of great information, especially on how you can retain that state file. Because I remember when I was first implementing, I, I did it in my in our like sandbox account, and I didn't really understand what that state file did. So I was like, "Oh, why is it just giving me all these files? Let me just chuck that into another folder, and I just redeploy." Because I, I forgot a tag, and I was like, "Why is it deprovisioning everything?" <laughs> I had a heart. My heart sank for a second. I was like, "Oh wait, no, I'm in dev. I'm in dev." Woo. <laughs> Yeah, I good thing that wasn't fun yeah. on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so happy. And I was like, okay, note to self, I need to protect that thing with my life. <laughs> but I yeah. I have seen some folks, what they've done. I, I know I keep referencing to AWS, but that's where most of my experience has been in. They actually, when they run like a Jenkins job, they export that file to an S3 bucket, have the bucket with um, like KMS encryption, and then as well as doing mm -hmm. versioning. So that way, if anything ever happens, let's say they mess up or like you said, it could ever get corrupted. Well, they have all those versions that they can always revert back to. And, and that was probably one of the, in my opinion, like the smartest or at least I should say cleanest management of that state file. Because you have S3 bucket lifecycle policy. They can say, hey, you know, 10, 10 versions, I think we're safe. Anything after 10, we can start nuking that so that we can also do some cost saving as well. But like you said, there is so much that you can do with it. But the worst thing you could do is keeping it on your local. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keeping it on your local and hoping for the best, yeah. right? Off, so, well, I'm making fun of just because of like the whole local thing. When somebody makes a deployment, they're like, hey, I swear it worked on my local. I don't know why it doesn't work on <laughs> Oh my God, I hate when that happens. <laughs> the one thing I do love about, and I'm going to use this term like third-party tools, is because I hate the term cloud native. I think it's the biggest marketing mm -hmm. ploy ever. And whenever I hear somebody in my leadership say that, I just cringe a little bit because and all it is is you're just being so embedded into someone else's data center that you don't have that flexibility to make quick decisions. So for instance, a lot of people now that are migrating into, let's say, either it's Azure, Google, or AWS, they're also trying to do cross-cloud deployments. So now maybe they're trying to link it to Azure or Google or to AWS, whatever, just so they can have that full functionality. So if let's say all of Google's down, for instance, well, you have Azure as a backup. And the one thing I like about Terraform is you don't have to relearn a language just to redeploy your infrastructure in another environment. For instance, if my entire production environment is solely in, let's say, AWS using CloudFormation, I can lift and shift that into Azure. At least with Terraform having that, it makes you that functionality a lot easier because you know how to translate what you've just done into another environment. Mm -hmm. With that said, have you seen this use case scenario often? 
and with your customers? Great question. Um, I actually have, and, and kind of backing up a little bit, that's kind of what Terraform was designed for, right? Um, it's really cloud agnostic, but also just platform agnostic because it can be deployed in, in on-premise environments, containers, et cetera, as well. And so when I see, when I talk to customers, they are either, there are a couple of different types of customers. So they might just be starting their cloud journey. Uh, they want to optimize their build process, their infrastructure provisioning process, uh, and they're just getting started. And so they might only deploy to a single cloud, but in the future, they might, they might want to go multi-cloud, or they might have a concern about vendor locking, as you mentioned, right? And so they want to be flexible about it. And so that's where they see the value of Terraform being cloud agnostic. Uh, other customers I talk to, they are they could be more mature and, and they're looking at moving from a single cloud to multi-cloud and scaling up and out, uh, as you kind of mentioned. And so... <clears throat> Um, I will say that, you know, it's not impossible to go from, let's use, for example, AWS to Azure. It's not impossible. It's, it's going to be a huge headache though, right? You're going to have to potentially, no, definitely refactor your code, different syntaxes and different resource names, et cetera. And so it just becomes such a heavy lift. You end up doing the thing that you're trying to avoid, which is you end up staying in your primary vendor, you're locked into your vendor. Um, and so if <clears throat> customers start off with a tool like Terraform and, and codifying their infrastructure builds to be a, a platform agnostic, it's really easy to bounce from one environment to another, whether they're scaling out or disaster recovery, performance reasons, HA, et cetera. Um, and so Terraform makes it really easy. And really the only things you might have to change going between environments is things like in AWS, it's called an EC2 instance, um, but in Azure, it's called a VM, for example. Think small, minor syntaxes like that, but in the general at a 50,000 foot view, the code is generally going to stay the same. It's still going to do the same thing. And it's all, it's all done via API and, and credentials. And so it makes it really easy for a lot of people to be cloud agnostic or platform agnostic. So for maybe like a redundancy, like a DR scenario, how have you seen some people implement Terraform? Uh, as far as the tool itself or the uh, infrastructure that they're building with Terraform? I want to say a little bit of both. So let's say the infrastructure they haven't on dies, or let's say like a couple of weeks ago, right? The whole US East went down mm -hmm. and everyone was locked out of um, US East one and they couldn't get into it. So what kind of redundancy would you have so they can maybe provision their infrastructure over in EU or US West in scenarios like that? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> a couple different ways to skin the cat um, in... I don't think I've run into any customer stories around that. Um, they kind of either build it from the beginning um, and, you know, test out their DR scenarios using um, like failover scenarios. And they would have those applications that they're deploying or whatever uh, resource that are deploying. It would that component um, would fail over to the new region as part of that, the application layer. Uh, but essentially, <clears throat> you could uh, do something like, let's say, you know, we, we talked about the Jenkins pipeline example. Um, let's say you have that. Uh, and so maybe when it's doing an infrastructure build or maybe it's periodically um, uh, catching drift of the infrastructure, making sure uh, everything is set and, and syncing the state file with what exists out there. Maybe you can do a health check 
um, periodically, right? Or maybe you have, uh, and this is true for a lot of the federal agencies that I talk to, but a monitoring solution already in place, right? Like things like Splunk, things like Nagios, things like Datadog, Elastic, et cetera. <clears throat> so you could definitely build in some sort of monitoring uh, component there, use that tool for what it's designed for, right? So it could proactively detect things like latency when, when getting responses from that environment. In US East One, for example, it, you know, collecting those metrics from those applications and, and uh, doing some analytics on them. You could build off of that, right? Um, maybe that you can webhook from that uh, and service now ticket uh, to just notify the team or, hey, this incident happened. Uh, and then as a sub uh, subtask, maybe kick off a new Jenkins pipeline to make your secondary DR site, your US West site um, become primary. Let's, let's build it out now. Let's get everything uh, up and running. And then we'll also trigger a third Jenkins pi uh, job. Go ahead and do the application failover and that will be at the application layer. And so, yeah, there's, there's a couple different ways to go about it. Um, and that's, what's great about it is because you can be flexible based on what your current tool set is, what your environment is, what your workflows are like. I would say the worst thing would be to not, um, not preempt that or not start thinking about it. Right. And, and then lastly, I think when customers are building multi-cloud or even multi-region environments and they're thinking of redundancy or disaster recovery, they will build uh, certain architectures, whether it's active-active, active-passive, and, and based on that, based on that, they can have uh, a level of uh, recovery, right? So your uh, whatever your organization's recovery point objective is, recovery time objective, those kinds of things, like how much downtime can you actually afford? What if kicking off that Jenkins pipeline to stand up the infrastructure in us west is going to take 30 minutes or or an hour maybe you have 50,000 servers or provisioning happening and then the failover is going to take a while can you really be down that much time and if not then they decide to go in an active active instance or architecture and, and they'll keep both running uh, at the same time and and um that way it has the most minimal amount of um of downtime and it's for some industries, like banks, for example, every second, millisecond, or minute that they're down could be actual like dollars that they're losing, right? And so, yeah, super important to at least be thinking about DR, but uh, many, many different ways to uh, skin the cat. Thanks. I, I do want to touch base on one thing that you were talking about earlier, and it is one of my favorite tools, and that is Ansible. And I love how flexible Ansible is. I haven't actually ever done this use case scenario myself. I've seen so many people on Reddit talk about it. It's just, mm -hmm. and I love how seamless it is, and it's just integrating Ansible with Terraform. Would you mind kind of talking about how that relationship works and if how you've seen people maybe implement that? Sure. Yeah, great question. So I think it's important to note that uh, so, some people think that, you know, Ansible, Chef Puppet, their configuration management tools, they use code as well, and, and they do their job really well as well. They think of it as a competitive to Terraform, for example, or competitor to Terraform or a replacement or alternative. And while it's true that, you know, Terraform can do some configuration management or Ansible can do some infrastructure builds, for example, really it's a sort of a better together relationship, right? And so the best analogy uh, I like to use is, is something I used in the beginning with uh, the workflow could be like essentially you're you're building a house and you design the exterior of the house, you design the garage, the roof, uh, and so Terraform will go ahead and build out that exterior shell. 
the garage, the roof, the windows, the doors, everything on the exterior. Then Ansible will come in and go ahead and do the interior decorating. It'll build out the, the kitchen, dining room, et cetera, and do that configuration management piece. And so it's sort of like a perfect handoff and it's pretty seamless from the different use cases I've explored with, with customers. And so um, it really makes, makes that infrastructure, not only infrastructure build, but also configuration process a lot easier as well. So you don't have one team building out that infrastructure and then throwing their hands up saying, okay, I'm done. Like, you know, that's it, right? <laughs> My job is done. Uh, and then now it's up to you or the end user to go in and configure it. Like, why not make everyone's lives easier and just do it all at once? Uh, especially in uh, our current world and where the industry trends are heading, which are, which is automation, right? And so less human interaction or potential uh, mistakes that humans could do, automate that and, and codify that. And so I think that relationship works really well. I, I love that analogy. Have That was probably one of the best analogies I've heard, at least with Terraform and Ansible. That was, that was great. And I think the whole... I think the concept as well that I see the industry going into is they're kind of also like doing that subculture of GitOps. And I think that is so important and critical, just having that source of truth and being able to define all those values there. And, and I was I was laughing to myself a lot when you, when you were saying where you just say, I wipe my hands. Hey, good luck, guys. Like, <laughs> I'm out. So many times that happens. And so often it's like, you know, you could really just kind of help them out a little bit. Like in my previous orgs, someone came and asked me like, hey, like, I don't have much experience. I'm like, what do you need? Just tell me, give me your wish list. I got you. Just don't worry about it. Right. Like, I, I understand yeah. the stress and the pain point. And you, you did just say one thing I, I forgot and I wanted to touch base on, which was you can modify like cider blocks and stuff. I think it's often f like people forget that it's not just like hardware, like infrastructure, like instances and databases you can provision. It's also VPCs and subnets, knuckles, um, like security groups. Like you can modify that a lot. Like there was uh, one guy in the past that, I don't touch networking with a 10 full pull mainly because I just don't understand it. Right? Like that just goes above my head. It's just one thing I've, I've tried. I just don't get it. And he would always just awesome guy, right? Sit down with me, help me out with whatever he needed to do. But often that his team would work a lot like late nights, modifying tons of, you know, VPCs and the networking configurations across multiple accounts. And I always say to him, Hey, why don't you just automate that? And there's all these tools, just like, you know, Terraform, you can go in and, make these changes and just blanket your entire accounts. And that way you don't have like a team of 10 working late nights, right? You just modify mm -hmm. it and just put Jenkins on a cron and you're done. Like just wake up in the morning and check it out. Like hey, everything's up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that's going to be about it, everybody, for today's episode on Terraform. I really do appreciate you, Jay, for hopping in and taking time out of your day to talk about this with me. You know, Terraform has been one of my favorite tools that I've loved to get into, and it's also how easy it is. And I think as everyone else has been listening to this episode, there's so much room and so much things you can do with it. It's not just infrastructure. You can do so much wide range with it. So again, I just want to thank you for your time for hopping in. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Uh, this is actually my first podcast, uh, so it was an interesting experience. Uh, I, I want to thank you for having me on, Pedram, and uh, really interesting discussion. Uh, and hopefully uh, you and the listeners learned something from me and, uh, and you know, uh, we can touch base soon, maybe learn about some other things as well and, and other use cases uh, and, you know, different perspectives as well. So thanks for having Definitely. me. Definitely. I would love that. And I think everyone else would love that as well. 
And as always, everyone, thank you. And until next week.